environmental injustice isn't something unique to Orange County, to California, to the U.S. It happens all over the globe, but by nature of environmental justice and environmental racism, it's addressed local and specific issues that, in effect, contribute to the climate crisis. Santana has like the, one of the highest rates of climate risk in the country. So susceptibility to drought, flooding, and like increase in diseases that we're going to see in the coming years um, with the changing climate around us, right? But it also has the lowest climate readiness index um, for the country, according to the Notre Dame Global Adaptation Initiative. So right, right here in Orange County, which is considered one of the most affluent places in the country, we have a city that's a, the highest climate risk and the lowest climate readiness. And I do think that is because of who lives here and who's considered a priority as opposed to like Irvine next door. Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Heritage Future present Engaging the World, Leading the Conversation on Environmental Justice. This series explores environmental racism and climate injustice. Since the Industrial Revolution, we have been choking our waters with waste, poisoning our soil, and contaminating the air we breathe, all in the name of progress. In the most vulnerable communities, with the least amount of representation and power, suffer through the worst effects. Environmental justice brings awareness to these marginalized communities, their activism, and the path forward, fighting to ensure that every voice is heard, every challenge is addressed, and every community has a seat at the table for a greener future. In this episode, we connect with Kayla Asado, the redistricting organizer for Orange County Environmental Justice, and Patricia Hovell Flores, the project director for Orange County Environmental Justice. Here are Kayla Asado and PJ Flores. Environmental justice, I think, can be really misleading as a term because when people think about justice and environment and those two words together, uh, they often think about it in terms of justice for the environment, uh, addressing environmental issues. But environmental justice is much, much more than that. Environmental justice is by nature a very local issue. It is addressing systemic racism that impacts people's health. I'll give it an example. The first time I really learned about anything regarding environmental justice and how racism really affects health uh, was in a medical sociology class at Chapman, talking about how, depending on your zip code, your life expectancy changes, and how it, even in like neighboring zip codes, it can be like 10 to 20 years different just because of these environmental burdens. I think that the perspective that I use when I approach like understanding environmental justice is that looking at all these issues, for example, like wildfires, drought, um, all these effect, effects of climate change, um, who are the people that are being most impacted by those issues? And those communities globally, as well as locally in the U.S., locally in California, all the way down here to Orange County, um, are across the board usually low-income people of color, right? And so those are the folks that are low, living in proximity to the highest rates of air pollution. Like, for example, you know, looking at how air pollution burden works in Orange County, People of color have the highest burden of air pollution across the board, you know, not even thinking about class. So that means like even higher income people of color are facing a higher burden for air pollution than lower income white communities, right? And so when we think about coming up with the solutions, I think that it's important to ground ourselves in the people who are most impacted by these issues, right? And since they're the ones that also be experts from their own lived experience and being able to offer the kind of solutions that we actually need that will address these problems at the root. 
right? And so if we come up with, for example, like environmental solutions that focus on coastal communities where it tends to be more affluent, and um, like in Newport Beach, Laguna Beach and all that, that's not gonna do much to address the impacts on people living in the urban areas of Orange County, like Santana, Anaheim and Fullerton that are closer to the freeways, right? Um, so I think that being able to address all of these issues at once means like going to where these issues are the strongest. I myself, like, I've always had like a little bit of trouble breathing, but I used to live right next to a rail. So literally the railroad was on the other side of my wall. And when the train came by, it shook my house. And there were freight trains that came by, passenger trains, freight trains, and you could see the smoke changes and everything. But more importantly, that impacted my breathing. Now I live by two hospitals and by like an energy transformer, like uh, something that transforms sources of energy into like energy itself and everything. And I see smokestacks come from literally like 300 feet, maybe from my window every single, every other day. It's just a matter of, do I want to keep my window open? Do I want to have an air purifier? Do I want to uh, let my room become a sauna because my windows are closed sort of thing? Because there isn't much else I can do. There's a reason why my rent is so cheap sort of thing. And it's because not only do I live like in a like more business working class area, but it's because I live next, next, live next to like these hospitals, these smokestacks. I live next to like two major freeways. Um, so when you look at a website like the Calavera screen uh, and you see like air pollution at like the 90th or 100th percentile, it makes sense. Um, and that's just air pollution. That's not even getting into like soil lead. That's not even getting into water quality. And because it's like a low income area, like probably doesn't have the best pipes from like the water um, source to my house. There are only so many things that we can do outside of addressing the environmental injustices and the sources of them. It's not just, do I close my window and get an air purifier? It's how do I stop it from polluting my air? Like how can I get them to stop polluting my community and my neighbors? I think the other side of it is that seeing how the systems that similarly oppress people of color um, are interrelated to the same systems that cause these environmental and climate issues, right? Um, like the same factories that don't pay us well enough and that break our strikes, um, you know, and like make sure that we're coming home with diseases from inhaling the fumes from the factories, you know, um, are the same ones that are impacting the environment for everybody's health, right? Regardless of whether you're a person of color from a low-income neighborhood. Now with Orange County environmental justice, you do look mainly at your area. And I would love to know what some of the unique challenges that Orange County have or, or create that make it more susceptible to environmental racism um, and how it differs from like San Diego or Riverside or, or uh, San Bernardino or Los Angeles. Yeah, so I think we definitely have a unique set of like environmental uh, crises going on, you know, here in Orange County locally. I can talk about like even from my own experience. I grew up in Santana. Um, I was born and raised here. Um, and my mom, you know, going to work would have to walk through the Delhi neighborhood of Santana. 
Santana's biggest industries are the aerospace, uh, the aerospace industry and the uh, defense industry, right? So there's a lot of like um, military manufacturing, airplane manufacturing in this Delhi neighborhood where my mom would always have to walk through. And she feels that because of that, um, myself and my brother, we both have asthma, right? Um, and that's just from, you know, she doesn't have a degree in environmental sciences or anything like that. That's just from her lived experience. And so when we came back later as an organization, uh, we formed in 2015 and I started as an organizer in 2016 with uh, OCEJ. We did surveys in that same neighborhood that my mom would have to walk through all the time when uh, she was pregnant with me. And we talked to uh, families there and there's actually several cancer clusters in that area, right? Um, especially among youth. And that, you know, residents constantly talking, talk about like, you know, for example, cleaning the um, screens on their windows every day. And then the next, like within, you know, hours, sometimes it's completely covered in this kind of soot like material. There's a high prevalence of asthma and all these other respiratory diseases there. And so we see that it's like, it wasn't just a, a suspicion, right? It's actually backed up by evidence that they're witnessing in front of them and being impacted by. So I think the prevalence of these industries is actually something that's uh, very central to Orange County. Orange County has always been pretty friendly towards aerospace and military defense manufacturing. So cities like Fullerton and Anaheim face similar issues. I'd also say like the confluence of freeways. Um, there's, you know, like Southern California is a driving, uh, you know, part of the country. And so I think that's definitely impacted low-income and migrant communities of color, especially when we look at these areas. I think Orange County is unique only in the sense that it is intentionally segregated. Um, like when Orange County was formed, it was supposed to be, it was formed by the Confederate uh, soldiers, I believe, that were escaping from the Civil War. And they were like, we want to escape to somewhere uh, where it's nice and kind of just like in this whole vein of uh, an antithesis to the liberal LA County at the time. Uh, Ronald Reagan himself said, Orange County is where good re Republicans go to die. Richard Nixon is from here. Uh, if you go to several um, graveyards right by, um, like in close proximity to Chapman, you'd see unmarked Confederate graves. If you see like Irvine, people see Irvine as like a more Asian city. Uh, people see um, Santa Ana, Anaheim, Fullerton as more Latino Latinx cities. The Cypress Street Barrio in Orange, it's, I think that part's self-explanatory. Orange County is very much redlined and segregated. So I think that lends itself to some more of that environmental injustice part. I think that the Black Panthers, actually, there was a Black Panther group in Santana in the 60s. Um, and they pointed to the fact that this lead contamination that we talked about in our presentation with Chapman, um, this lead contamination issue is actually like a result in some ways of desegregation, right? Um, because like the areas that were opened for desegregation were areas that people were already, uh, more affluent people were already trying to leave because they were aware of the issue of lead contamination. And so the areas where people of color were allowed to move in, uh, which was a victory, right? At the same time, were specifically allowed to move into because they knew that there was already health issues there, right? And so people were already trying to get out of the area. And so the, you know, the lowering property values were already an issue at that time. Um, and the Black Panther chapter locally, and then, you know, nationally, they have a lot of like science research that backs up their work. Um, and so 
they were bringing this up back in the 60s. And so to this day, we are only barely getting policies enacted to address that lead contamination in Santana and other areas of the county. So I think that that's definitely a very specific issue in Orange County. Um, that is a result of not only like lead and paint, but also lead and gasoline because of how much of a driving economy we have here. So those are a couple of the ways that it works specifically. The only other way I'd want to mention is really how, you know, like the Tsongba and Akachiman indigenous peoples here in Orange County, um, who are the original caretakers of this land. Locally, them being barred from being able to access their land, um, especially given that both those tribes are lack federal recognition, meaning that to this day, they don't have a reservation or any kind of land allotments, right? Because of that, you know, we're witnessing this like mass industrialization of Orange County. It's gone from, you know, ripping up original oak forests to replace with uh, citrus farms to this, you know, expansive like LA metropolis, you know, that's just like part of this big old like LA city, basically at this point. Also, a part of that is like the bar- the damming of the rivers, you know, like Akashman Tsongba people is like believe in caring for this place, like from mountains to sea and caring for the waterways that connect them. Right. But um, the damming of the rivers has led to a lot of water contamination issues. It's also led to uh, steelhead trout locally not being able to migrate upstream. And that affects the environments of the mountains as well as the ocean. And so I think that seeing that as an environmental injustice specific to Orange County is also very important um, because it has to do with barring those people from being able, barring indigenous people to be able to care for those places and practice ceremony that relates to the health of life uh, from mountains to the ocean. When you talk about the the Tongva and the Kashaman nations, it, it's unfortunate, but as we discuss the challenges of marginalized communities, the indigenous community tends to fall to the to the back. How important is it to share the challenges and and the need to to address these issues for these indigenous communities? I think it's incredibly important. Um, I came into OCJ as director back last November, but previous to that, I was working a lot with a group called Friends of Pavogna. Uh, it's an intertribal group of folks locally working to protect um, the sacred site of Pavungna in Long Beach. Um, Kelsey Long Beach is currently built over it, um, but there's still 22 acres that haven't been built over that have been used for ceremony for decades now. And um, since uh, people started practicing like uh, religious freedom within indigenous communities again, um, it's ancestrally for, you know, like since time immemorial, uh, Pavungna was a place of gathering for both the Tongva and Akachiman people. So it's a place that they share in common as like a place of emergence for like their creator and lawgiver. Um, and so those kind of sites like Pavungna um, have been consistently under threat of development. Most recently, Cal State Long Beach was trying to build like several student facilities over the place. Um, and in the 90s, it was a strip mall. And so there's been several struggles over the years to protect it. And just last week, actually, we, there was a settlement reached in the lawsuit so that the university can no longer touch the site or develop over it um, permanently. So that's actually a huge victory. I personally believe that restoring custodianship to indigenous people, restoring their right to care for their own lands and water and to practice ceremony and, and to travel as they please, um, I think that's crucial to our survival for all humans, right? Uh, not just for indigenous peoples, because they have the ancestral knowledge to care for this place, to be able to restore the relationships between environment, right, and people. If we don't start doing those things now, like it's, we're past the point that we can think about it, really. Like, um, we're already suffering the effects of climate change. 
And in the ne next 10 to 15 years, that's going to be even more dramatic um, and have, you know, mortal consequences on our lives, right? And so, you know, debating that I don't think is an option anymore. Like we have to bring into uh, place, you know, like the people who have this knowledge to be able to care for this place, you know, and uh, give them the power to do so. And then build the bridges between their struggles and, you know, being able to see how that affects everybody else, right? For example, like, you know, with our soil lead issue in Santa Ana, um, we're currently doing a study about how native California plants and fungi can be used to remove the lead from the soil. Uh, because currently the practice with the CalEPA and several you know, local agencies like the Orange County Healthcare Agency, the practice is just dig up the soil and move it somewhere else. We can no longer afford to just move environmental toxins from one place to another. You know, maybe you're not affecting this community now, but the next community that you dump it in is going to be affected, right? Um, we have to use practices that actually, you know, restore the land. Um, and those kind of practices are held by Indigenous peoples. They know how to use like different plants and fungi um, to be able to maintain a balance between the nutrients and the soil. Being able to have folks at the table who can lead those kind of movements and use traditional scientific knowledge to restore the soil in a way that doesn't just move the problem, but actually addresses it. I think that those are the kind of solutions that we need right now. It seems like one of the biggest challenges or, or potential opportunities is a sense of awareness. Um, and in your work, I'm, I'm sure you come across people who have lived in, in these places for decades and had no idea of the hazards that are in their air or in their soil or in their water. How does your organization go about bringing awareness to the community? And, and how important is the youth in bringing that awareness? I know with your Environmental Justice Organization Academy, it's focused on, on youth and, and youth activism. I think youth are so integral to this process people who haven't just decided like I want to make things better for future generations I want to make sure that my kids live in a good and healthy environment okay but what about you but when a kid is talking about it like I'm going to inherit this place I'm going to live in this world I don't want to like live in a world where I'm being slowly poisoned over the next 20 years before like fires come and burn down my way of life and I have to like, evacuate and I can't move anywhere and I'm homeless and I'm just slowly dying. People don't want that. People want to like take action to their own hands because I know at least my generation is sick and tired of everything. We want radical change. Um, people call themselves like socialists, democratic socialists, communists, anarchists, whatever. Um, people uh, really want um progressive populists that are actually going to change the system and when someone talks to their parents about why they want some change it has a lot more of an impact than if um their parent is talking to their kid about why they need that change um one because i think youth have more time on their hands and are more engaged with this kind of stuff and they want to be more engaged but also because we don't have time to waste. We want to build alliances where we can and youth are the people who are going to seek this kind of information out more. Yeah, I think youth are essential for all of those processes. I think for one, um, all of the kind of research action initiatives that we take on, 
are led by the community from the beginning. Um, you know, for example, like with the soil lead issue, it was because community members brought up um, the that they are aware that there's a huge prevalence of lead in the soil in specific neighborhoods, that there started to be more media attention, right? Like um, with Think Progress released the article where they, Yvette Cabrera, a reporter with um, Think Progress and Grist, brought an XRF scanner, just a little machine that you can uh, use to test soil for lead. Um, and, you know, was able to find like incredibly high concentrations in a few neighborhoods, right? And so after that, community members who read the article wanted more information about all the neighborhoods across Santana. When community makes us demand, like, we need more research about this, like, that's kind of where OCEJ steps in, really. So from the start, we have community involved and community leading it. Afterwards, it's like actually having community members carry out the research. So um, we actually worked with a group called Jovenes Cultivando Cambio, Youth Cultivating Change. Um, and it's a local grassroots youth group in uh, Santana. And they actually conducted um, most of the soil samples for our study. Um, they went out there, talked with residents, um, got permission to take samples um, and participate in these discussions about like the implications of these results that the neighborhoods that were most impacted by soil lead were mostly renters, low income, uh, no college background um, and mostly migrant communities, right? And so, you know, we, at the same time as going out and taking these soil samples, they were having conversations um, with the people around them, asking them if they knew about any issues with lead, right? And when we got their contact information, we, once we were able to publish these results, we called folks back up again that we took soil samples from um, and told them what the results were um, and shared with them that we were you know, engaging these conversations with the city and the healthcare agency and that their voices were important in that to make sure that people knew that they were concerned about it, right? So we would um, take any opportunity to spread this information that way, um, especially first with the people who we knew their houses were on like lead contaminated areas. Um, but also we did mutual aid calls during the outset of the pandemic um, where we you know, connected folks to resources for food and healthcare at the same time as letting them know about like the results of our soil lead study. And if they were living in a neighborhood impacted that this is where they could go get lead lead testing and to see like to what extent that they'd been impacted by the lead contamination. Um, and then, you know, telling them how they can get involved by advocating at the city level with the planning commission and the city council to get policies into the general plan update um, that address soil lead contamination. I think doing outreach to people in certain census tracts in certain zip codes to um, try to find organizers in their communities building power, building electoral power, building like a lobbying power so that that's why OCUJ is a 501c4 organization so that we can elect people who will do something about the soil lead crisis. But the conversations that we've been having in Santa Ana have been tremendously different once we had a new city council and mayor. Like we got three environmental justice allies in one election cycle and the conversation, and that's like almost half of the city council that's huge. The conversations that we've had are so much different. I was just reading about uh, your city of Santa Ana and, and how I think it was in, within the last couple of weeks, they passed a resolution declaring a climate emergency um, and that the city will start to take action to uh, examine. And I know that your organization helped bring that about. And also, uh, around the same time, L.A. County supervisors voted to phase out oil and gas drilling throughout L.A. County. And then 
Culver City earlier in the summer uh, passed a similar order. The, these seem like huge steps in the right direction. How important are these decisions for, for the fight for environmental justice? And will they bring more attention and action to the fight? Are they kind of lip service at this point? I think they're definitely helpful. I think that like for the resolution in Santana particularly, we made sure that there is uh, provisions on there that obligated the city to remediating the soil and to rental protections uh, for folks living on lead contaminated areas. So the same kind of like, you know, uh, rent control and just cause eviction protections um, to make sure that they can stay in the places that get remediated. So I think that while the resolution itself doesn't create those policies, it creates an obligation for the city to do so. So it's something that we can hold them account- accountable to later. I mean, or even now, because we're trying to get these policies passed in the general plan update that they're trying to get done by November. And so while they were you know, hesitant about including things about rent uh, protections and stuff like that, now we have a document that says, actually, you already promised to do this. I think that with the resolution, they put on their an obligation to phase out of fossil fuels um, and go to 100% renewable energy by 2045. I think that's insufficient. Um, I think that should be like by 2030 um, because we can't wait until 2045. That's already at a point where we're going to be in a climate catastrophe um, if we're not there already, you know? And so I do think that those kind of things only serve as lip service. We need more aggressive approach to these problems, right? Um, And I think that from being in these conversations where I was talking with multiple city council members trying to negotiate with them to accept the 2030 date instead, um, a lot of it's just their fiscal concerns and feeling like, well, we don't want the city to be responsible for this or, um, you know, we don't want to like have to have the burden of creating a new infrastructure. So if someone else has an infrastructure, maybe we'll buy into it later. And that's just not something that we can afford to do at this point like we have to have like our you know local city governments taking the lead on these things and pushing um to create those solutions right we need more than what's being promised right now but it's definitely a start and i think that the way that i balance that is that not relying solely on policy um because i do think that it's a helpful way of going about this work it's something that we're going to you know need assistance with but at the same time like it's incredibly slow and it's frustrating for our community members who are explaining their survival and what they need to be able to have healthy lives and, you know, to kind of have, you know, like officials like snub their noses at them, you know, and just like um, say that it's their own problem or that, you know, we don't have the capacity to do that. It's hurtful for a lot of the people that we work with and who are dealing with the worst effects of climate change. We also want to try approaching grassroots solutions, like with the whole, uh, native California plants and fungi solutions for remediating the lead. That's something that residents can do themselves, you know, and like that's something we're hoping to train residents to do is like learn how to use remediation techniques that are more sustainable, right, for our environment. And so I think like balancing those two is necessary so that even as we're advocating for policies, officials can see that residents are already doing this. So if they don't create the solutions, then like residents are going to do it and leave the city behind in some ways, right? So, um, yeah, I think that's what keeps me hopeful in all of these kind of fights is knowing that even when policy is going slow, residents have the passion to keep going and make their own kind of way about it. A lot of times people want to take action, but they don't know what to do. And that's fine. People see like a hot button issue and they try to 
hop onto it. Uh, once you get the victory, you kind of like fizzle out, go to the next thing if you save that long to begin with. And then we kind of wonder and think like, why aren't we getting the changes? Why aren't things, things getting better? Because I'm doing the things, I'm advocating going to city council meetings, protesting um, this and that. Unfortunately, organizing is not like a one and done sort of thing. It's not something that you can just do quickly and easily and move on to the next thing. It is long, it is arduous, oftentimes not super sexy and everything, but it is really, really rewarding and meaningful to see the changes happening in real time. Seeing um, Santa Ana pass a, I think it was called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty kind of thing. And as one of the county's like biggest users of fossil fuels, that was huge. And I think it's like the third most population density in the entirety of California and one of the like fifth or something in the country. So seeing like some of these small victories, when we get soil lead remediation into the general plan and promises made, it really is nice and rewarding sometimes. So what I challenge people who are listening to this podcast to do, um, especially if they care about environmental justice or racial justice or even climate justice, join OCEJ or some other environmental justice, climate works uh, in Orange County, be part of our member base, be part of our projects, be part of our work. If you see something that you think we have capacity for, propose it for yourself, join us, work with us, and let's change Orange County for the better. If you'd like to continue the conversation, visit ocej.org to learn more or chapman.edu slash Wilkinson to watch the full lecture. For more socially conscious content, visit publicpodcasting.org or follow us at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast.